that I'm talking about something this morning that I'm, I'm really passionate about, talking about the church and what commitment looks like to this beautiful thing Jesus has created called the church. Um, I do love the church. Maybe you caught some of that in, in my little talk about our, our church and our small town. Um, but I know that I'm not totally representative of most uh, millennials, people of my generation. Uh, the reality is that gathering together to worship God is becoming an increasingly countercultural thing to do, even an unpopular thing to do. Uh, millennials, uh, only two in ten, according to some studies, think that even that church attendance is even somewhat valuable. Uh, most think that it's actually outright a bad thing to do. Um, in fact, Jesus still has strong approval numbers across the board. Most people are like, yeah, two thumbs up for Jesus. But the church is seen often as unnecessary at best and downright unhelpful at worst. But it's, it's actually not just the church that's seen as uh, a, a, maybe a difficult thing and, and unlikely to commit to in our day and age. It's actually all forms of social commitments across the board. Um, Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam, uh, Harvard is a big school in America, I'm sure you guys know about that, right? Um, I've loved that. I, I know very little about like South African stuff, but you guys know like everything about our stuff, and it kind of puts me to shame. I did go to a rugby game yesterday day, uh, and go Stormers. It was awesome. So, yeah, I showed those New Zealands what was up. Um, so, but Harvard sociologist Robert Putnam, he's been chronicling the collapse of neighborliness in the Western world, particularly in America, and social connectedness. And uh, he noticed, starting in the early 90s, a curious phenomenon. Bowlers in America, there were just as many bowlers as ever before, but fewer people than ever were joining bowling leagues. Okay, so he wrote a book called Bowling Alone, um, which was kind of typical of this thing that was happening. People were still bowling, but they weren't bowling together anymore. They were bowling by themselves. And, and this was not just in bowling. It was across all other kinds of social and service organizations, from bridge clubs to alumni groups to veterans associations to church memberships. Uh, memberships in general were aging and new people were not, not joining. Um, he also noted that as membership in social organizations dropped, so did socializing with friends. He, he noticed that people weren't having friends over for dinner as often anymore. Between 1975 and 1999, the average number of times that Americans had people over to their homes dropped by half. And Putnam was teasing out in his book the connection between community life and personal fulfillment. And he said, it is hard to believe that the generational decline in social connectedness and the associated general increase in suicide, depression, and malaise are unrelated. Because we were made for relationships, but very often we're, we're cutting ourselves off from them. Uh, and that's what's happening in our culture in, in uh, the Western world. But Jesus' kingdom is supposed to be different from that. Um, and I want you to be a church that presents something radical to the world, something different and compelling and beautiful to the world, but so often we're not able to do that because too often we've swallowed some of the same cultural idols as the world. Um, so I'm going to look at this morning a pretty well-worn passage, one that we return to a lot in our church, and I imagine your pastors have probably pointed you to it a time or two as well. But it's a very important passage for us because of how it gets right at our cultural idols and presents us with a, a countercultural way to live. Acts 2, starting in verse 41. 
Right after Peter at Pentecost preaches really the first evangelical sermon and people come to Christ, it's the birth of the church, and this is what happens. People respond to the gospel. People from all over the world, by the way, people from different cultural backgrounds, different socioeconomic backgrounds, people that spoke different languages, and they were all in town together for Pentecost, and they come to Christ together, and it says in verse 41, those who received the word of the gospel were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is God's word. I love this passage, uh, the birth of the church. I love to return to it again and again, even in my imagination, just to think about what the church would have felt like in those early days. You remember when when Christ ascended, he left a pretty small group, maybe 120 or so people, people who had all had pre-existing relationships with one another, existing relationships with Jesus. And in that moment at Pentecost, over 3,000 people from different backgrounds and different cultures all came together and all of a sudden had to figure out what it looked like now to commit to one another and begin to sacrifice for one another and be family together. You know, if it were me and I was in that group of 120 people who all knew each other and had existing relationships and we could all fit in one upper room and all of a sudden that thing turned into 3,000 people, this isn't what I signed up for. I might have started church shopping at that point for something a little bit more comfortable, something that probably met my needs a little bit better. Now, I'm not saying that there are no moments when it's appropriate to leave a church. Those, those times come. But as a culture, we are very quick to bail on commitments and to avoid commitments altogether. We're a commitment-phobic generation. We have more options than ever, and we like to keep those options open. But that is actually killing our ability to do real church, because real church will always mean a costly commitment to community. To enter a relationship with Jesus meant automatically for those in the early church and for us as well, it means automatically to enter into a costly relationship with the family of Jesus, with the body of Christ. Some of us have not been discipled into this and our culture does not always make it easy for us. Uh, Before we talk about what commitment can look like and should look like, I want to spend a few minutes talking about two distortions, dangerous distortions of church that are very easy for us to buy into and that are totally antithetical to the vision of church that we see in Acts 2. The first one is individualism. Individualism, it distorts the way that we view church because individualism sees church as about what I can get out of it. Individualism says church is about what I can get out of it. Here's a problem. Some of us have been taught a version of Christianity that we can do all by ourselves. Some of us have been taught a way of living for Jesus that is basically all about you and your relationship with God, your religious performance, your quiet time, your personal piety, your sexual purity. That's what your Christianity is all about. It's just really something that you could pull off by yourself. But the vision of New Testament Christianity is completely anchored in committed community. Um, In Western Christianity... Christianity, the call of Jesus, it often becomes something primarily about meeting my spiritual needs. 
having my spiritual needs fulfilled. So we, 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 we drop into church for an inspiring lift, uh, something to, to help me more fulfilled, to boost my marriage, to help my relationships, to make me a, a more spiritual person, maybe to learn some stewardship practices to help me get out of debt, maybe teach me some lessons that could be helpful for my social advancement, my professional advancement. But here's the reality. The Christian story does not revolve around us as individuals. The Christian story is not the story of me becoming a more righteous individual. The Christian story is the story of the people of God. It's the story of of God and his people, the story of a king and his kingdom, the story of the bridegroom and his bride. And we see this from the very beginning in Acts 2, at the birth of the church. It says in verse 41 that those who received the word of the gospel, his word that was preached, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So people did not just accept Jesus as their personal savior. They were also added. When they were saved, they were added. What were they added to? They were added to the church, to the community of the church. We see a lot of people get saved in this passage, but then very interestingly, we don't learn very much about their personal relationship with Jesus. Instead, what we begin to learn about is the way that they were committed to one another in very costly ways. We learn about their relationships with each other. The very next verse, after they're saved and added, says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Uh, All those things, except for maybe teaching, are things that involve community and relationships. And even the teaching was something that they did together. Uh, This word fellowship, I don't know if it has the same connotation here as in America. It can be kind of a hokey word for us, the word fellowship. Um, It kind of brings to mind things like fellowship halls, which are poorly lit rooms and churches with really ugly carpets where you eat food out of crockpots. I don't know. Is that a thing here? So maybe that's just an American thing, right? But fellowship, it's like, it's the weird thing that Christians do when they get together, right? But this is actually an amazingly rich Greek word. The Greek word is koinonia. Um, the, the dictionary definition of the Greek word koinonia is intimate spiritual communion. It's participative sharing in a common commitment to community. And this is the word at the heart of what we mean by community, um, Years ago, there was, there was a really cranky guy that was coming to one of our sites at One Harbor. Not, not my uh, site, but I, I did meet the guy at one point, and I, got, I had a conversation with him at a men's meeting, and he was so excited to tell me about all the churches that he had left because he got angry about what was being taught there or people that uh, offended him. And I just kind of like was smiling and nodding, just thinking in my head, oh boy, <laughs> it's, it's just a matter of time till we disappoint you too. And um, at one point, uh, Tom, one of our site leaders, was preaching a sermon about community. And halfway through the sermon, and keep in mind, this was a, a pretty large site, maybe about 300, 400 people in the room. And um, the man stands up in the middle of the meeting, and he shouts out. He said, a hundred times. I, I counted, and he said the word community a hundred times. And he stormed out of the, of the room. And uh, one of the pastors grabbed him in the lobby and was just like, what is going on? And, and he said to the, this pastor, he kind of pointed a finger, he said, the word community isn't even in the Bible. You guys shouldn't be talking about it so much. And I was not there, but if I was there, I would have pointed to him, him to this word, koinonia. This word is actually all over the Bible. It means intimate, rich, sharing of lives. It means community, and it's what these people that were saved were added into. In fact... If we're talking about words or phrases that are not in the Bible anywhere, you might be surprised to learn that the phrase or the expression personal savior does not actually show up anywhere in the Bible at all. 
In fact, Paul's letters, he, he talks about Jesus a lot. He calls him our Lord 53 times and my Lord only one time. A big part of becoming a Christian is realizing that it's not just about me anymore. Uh, we're now a part of something bigger than ourselves. We're a part of God's people. We're entering into the body of Christ. We are not just saved. We are also added. And this is a, a hard thing for us to grapple with because our own culture and our society tend to get in our way. We live in a society that prizes individual happiness and really encourages each person to pursue what is good and right for them, even if it means it's not the best thing for the communities that they're a part of. I'm reminded of a famous quote by one of our dead presidents, John F. Kennedy. Do you guys know who that is? I don't want to just assume, but I'm pretty sure. Like, I don't know who your president was 60 years ago. I'm just saying. But JFK, he had that Boston accent. Do you guys know what his voice sounded like? He has this famous quote. Maybe you've seen it on a recording. I don't know. I have 100 times. I'm just assuming maybe you have too. Um, where he said, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Right? I, I think I nailed that. Um, but... We, we love that in America. We're like, whoa, that really stirs the heartstrings. That's amazing. But if we're honest, that ethos is actually nowhere in our personal lives. We, we, don't, we don't live that way. Few of us actually buy into that way of thinking when it comes to the communities that we're a part of. Think about the various groups that you belong to that make up your life. Your, your company that you work for, maybe the school that you attend, uh, maybe your church. Um, most of us don't ask what we can do for these groups. We want to know what they're going to do for us. In fact, if I was to stand up and say, don't you ask what this church can do for you. You ask what you can do for this church. I would say that some of you would probably say, I think this might be a cult. (laughs) I've heard about places like this, right? And that tendency in us to be so skeptical of us being so committed at that level to a community, it, 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 uh, it actually kills our ability to do real Christian community. We can assume that becoming a Christian is mostly about what it does for me, for my spiritual journey, for my growth in character, for my relationship with God. What do I get out of this? But the vision of the Bible is that when we come to Christ, we are added to his people. Um, so the second cultural idol that makes commitment to community difficult, not just individualism, but also consumerism. So individualism says church is about what's in it for me. Consumerism says church is an experience to enjoy. Um, there is no doubt that we live in the era of the consumer. Uh, in the internet era, we have unprecedented access to options. Although you guys still don't have amazon.com. I'm really sorry about that. Um, you will probably, it's only a matter of time. But you have unprecedented access to options, consumable options, right? Uh, When I was growing up, if I wanted to watch my favorite cartoon, I had to wait until Saturday morning at 9 a.m. when that cartoon came on. And then I had to sit through commercials. And then when the cartoon was over, Batman the Animated Series, and it ended with a to-be-continued, I had to pull out my hair and wait a whole week to see what happened next. Not anymore, right? Now with Netflix, you pick your favorite show anytime you want. You can watch it. The best entertainment options are on demand for us. Our culture has trained us to be excellent consumers, but we don't often ask how that is affecting us and how that shapes us as disciples of Jesus and how that shapes our expectations of the church of Jesus. Because we can bring that consumer mindset into the church. We, can, we have consumer options when it comes to church. Right? We can live stream church services from the biggest and wealthiest churches in the world. We can listen to sermons from the best communicators on podcasts and on their websites. We can listen to music from the most skilled worship bands. 
And there's absolutely a blessing in that. I love that we can be built up and edified by more resources than ever. But I think that it often gives us a pretty distorted view of what the church is. What is church? What is church? In the age of the consumer, we've been trained to think that church is an event put on by experts to meet our expectations. And the thing is, when we have a consumeristic mindset, a consumer quickly turns into a critic, right? Where we're evaluating the performance. You know, that preacher wasn't quite as smooth and polished as the guy last week, or this other guy that I saw online, or my favorite vocalist isn't singing this week, you know, or you find out who's preaching in advance, maybe I'm not going to show up that week, I'll just do church online. A lot of times, us church leaders, we respond to that mindset by trying to pump everything up, like everything is going to be the most exciting thing. Every event is going to be this unmissable experience to be consumed. Oh, this this event is going to be amazing. The next series is going to be life-changing. These small groups are going to rock your world. Uh, I love what one pastor said. He, He said, I have never heard a church leader say, this is going to be pretty average, not very exciting, and probably hard, but it will form your character, so you should deny yourself and show up anyway for your own good and the good of others. <laughs> that line of thinking does not carry much weight in the age of the consumer. But if we settle for a church that entertains us with high-quality experiences, we're missing it. Because you know what? I've been to some concerts that are better and more polished and more excellent than any worship experience I've ever been to. I've I've been to really entertaining movies. Did anybody see the new Avengers yet? Do you guys get those over here? I mean, we're not going to outdo that entertainment-wise, okay? But you know what? I've been to some really great entertaining movies, some really amazing concerts. Not a single entertaining event has ever changed my life. Church as an entertaining event for consumers will not bring the kind of transformation that the Church of Jesus Christ was meant to bring. So these are two cultural idols that we're up against that are threatening to keep the church from being all that Jesus wants her to be. Individualism, it says church is about what I can get out of it. Consumerism says church is entertainment to be consumed. But when we see the witness of the early church in the New Testament, we see something very different. Not individualism, not consumerism, but sacrificial commitment. What is church? Church is a family. This is where church comes alive, where it gets messy and where it gets beautiful. Uh, because family is not about what you can get out of it. You guys have Thanksgiving here? You probably have Christmas and, you know, you have holidays where the family comes together and probably there's moments where you'd actually not want to show up for them. It's like, you don't go for what you're going to get out of it, right? Family is not an event to entertain you. But family is what the church is meant to be, and it's what you need. And this truth is not, like, to the side of the gospel. No, this truth is at the heart of the very gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at Ephesians 2, at what Paul says about the church. Verse 13, Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Through the blood of Christ, through the death, the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, we have been reconciled to God. We've been brought near. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So when you are brought near by the blood of Christ, you are not just reconciled to God, you are also reconciled to one another in Christ. The dividing walls of hostility that stand between us are broken down in the very broken body of Jesus Christ 
and peace is made that he might, verse 16, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Verse 19, so, so, what's so? So because, because of the cross, because of the death of Jesus Christ, then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, and you are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is what Christ died for. Now, I've often heard it said, and I've even said this, that, you know, Jesus Jesus would have died for you if you were the only person on earth. And that is true. It is absolutely true. But I think it's also kind of a strange thing to say because that is a very individualistic way to look at what Jesus did. Did you just see what happened in Ephesians 2? He, he, he did. He would have died for me if I was the only person on earth. But, but that's not what he did. He didn't just die for me or just die for you. He died for every tribe, tongue, and nation to, to break down the dividing walls of hostility that ex- exists between us in his very broken body and to create in himself a new humanity through the blood of his cross, reconciling us together into one body. And the question is, how are we supposed to respond to that? How do we live in light of that, except by living out the community that Jesus Christ died to create? One thing I notice about the metaphors Paul uses in this passage is that they ratchet up in terms of commitment. He, he says you are fellow citizens with the saints, so you're like citizens of a new country, a new kingdom. But whatever your primary nationality is, whether you're an American or, or, or an, from New Zealand or from South Africa, whatever your primary nationality is, you have a new primary citizenship as a believer in Christ. You are now a Christian. You're, you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, and that's a big commitment. If anybody's ever been through a change of citizenship process, you've got to probably raise your right hand or swear some sort of oath of allegiance. It's committing to a country as a citizen is a big deal. But it's nothing like joining a family. The next one he says, he says, you're not just fellow citizens, you're members of the household of God. There's an even deeper level of commitment there, right? You you could actually move from your country of origin. You could even become a citizen in a new country. But no matter what you do, your family is your family. And then the last metaphor actually takes it to the highest level of commitment yet. Because yes, although your family is your family, I guess you could sort of disown your family if you wanted to be that person, right? But he says you're also being built together. He says, he says you're being built on the foundation of, of Christ, the cornerstone. In other words, you're like, you're like a brick cemented into a wall with other bricks. Now that's commitment. You're not going anywhere. Right? But for Paul, this is a beautiful thing. He says, Christ committed to us with his very broken body to create this thing. He committed to us in death so that we could be joined to one another in committed relationships built on the foundation of the gospel. And this is something that is ours in Christ. This is an inheritance of the gospel. One of my favorite sayings of Jesus is in Mark 10. His disciples are talking about how much they've given up to follow him. (laughs) And he tells them, about, yes, the pain, but also the privilege of being a follower of Jesus, when he responds by saying, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. 
So Jesus is like, yeah, guys, it is tough. It is going to be a struggle. You will have to walk away from some things to follow me. But you know what you get? You get houses, and you get mothers, and you get brothers, and you get sisters, and you get lands. What is he talking about? Houses and lands? Anybody own a house? Anybody? Hands, hands. You own a house? Okay. All right. If you belong to this church, you got a bunch of houses. Okay. That's what he's talking about. We do this thing at our church when we bring in new members. We call them partners. Um, We say a little partnership, covenant, commitment, and uh, the way that it ends every single time, and I didn't come up with this. I stole it from somebody who's better at community than I am. But we all say as a church together, what's in my fridge is yours and what's in your fridge is mine. Houses and mothers and brothers and sisters. That's one of the things that is our inheritance in Christ. Jesus says, yeah, it's going to be hard to follow me, but do you see what you get? There's privilege in this too. Um, Emily and I prayed with a woman a few months ago after a service. Her son had overdosed on heroin and died several months earlier. Um, And she had to be there with him and watch her only son, her only son's life, slip away. And it had been a few months, but she said that she just didn't know how she could get over this. And we prayed with her, and we didn't have any easy answers for her. We hugged her. (laughs) We just prayed for the comfort of the Holy Spirit. But I was in that moment reminded of this promise of Jesus. Because one of the things she said is, that was my only son. I don't have any other children. And she just seemed devastated by that. And I just felt that I needed to remind her that, yes, there's no replacement for your son. And that wound is always going to be there. But you've got to know that in Christ, in Christ, even if we have no children, even if we have no family biologically, in Christ we have mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers. And I encouraged her. I said, listen, God has made you a mother. And you still are a mother as a member of this community. You still have many children whose lives you can enter into. We are meant to take ownership of one another. We need that. I said before that church as entertainment doesn't really change us. An entertaining event is not what's going to change your life. What is going to change your life? What, what actually changes us? You know what actually changes us? Committed sacrificial relationships over the long haul with other believers in Christ. You want to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ? It's not going to be any single event that does it. It's going to be committed sacrificial relationships over the long haul. Bearing one another's burdens, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, working out the one another's of scripture, forgiving when you don't want to, receiving forgiveness from those that you've wronged. This is where growth happens. Paul says in one place to the Corinthian church, he tells them, you have many guides in Christ, but not many fathers. And you know, in our day, we have more guides than ever. We've got countless guides, right? Countless preachers we can listen to online. Countless podcasts we can listen to. All kinds of books that we can read. But not many fathers. You know, an an online preacher isn't going to sit with you when your marriage is on the rocks. An online church service is not going to help you move. (laughs) By the way, that... Like, right there is reason enough to go to church, because moving is the worst. Um, A few months ago, Emily and I moved. Emily and I moved, and um, a group of people from our church helped us move. And a 60-plus-year-old lady named Kathy, whom I have nothing in common with except Jesus, showed up before everybody else with a truck and a plate of biscuits. And she said, let's get going. (laughs) 
Online church can't be community to you when you lose a child. Uh, we recently had a premature child born um, a few months ago in the church, and he lived for five weeks and then passed away in the NICU, in the, the intensive care unit for children. Um, and while he was in the NICU, when his life was really just touch and go for several weeks, we prayed for him several times in the church service. We, as a body, lifted our hands to Jesus and just cried out for this child. And, um, you know, we had a worship leader that had recently only been attending when he was leading worship. I noticed it, that he was there when he was leading, and when he wasn't leading, he was nowhere to be found. And that Sunday, after we finished praying for this kid, I was just like over it. (laughs) And so I texted him, like during the service, and was just like, man, you're not just missing a sermon today. You're missing an important family moment. You just missed an opportunity to pray for this child. And that's not just a loss for you. That's a loss for all of us that you weren't a part of that. Because we belong to one another. Family doesn't just show up for each other when we're on a serving roster. And it's a privilege to show up for one another. So what does this commitment actually look like? Just three areas I want to quickly press into. First of all, as we commit to one another, first of all, let's commit to stay. This is pretty basic. It's also pretty revolutionary. I know that there will be moments where God is calling you to another place, maybe to another ministry, and and I understand that that, that's okay. There are moments when that happens. But if we're honest, most church jumping and church hopping is not often fueled by calling. It's often fueled by discontent, right? By a consumeristic sense of spiritual wanderlust, always open and hoping for something better. Those people will be more like me. They'll get me over there. Uh, Additionally, a lot of our moving um, around is because we simply don't value church community like we should. We don't value it as much as we value other things. For example, if you were offered a job in another city with more pay than the job you have now, would you automatically take it? And if so, then ask yourself, why do you value making more money? Why does that value automatically win over the value of deep-rooted community? Why is that? Uh, Maybe you've heard of the Benedictine monks. You know, most monks, they take vows of poverty and celibacy. um, But Benedict added a new vow when he started the monastery. He added a vow of stability. It meant that when you joined this community, you actually vow to remain for the rest of your life in that monastery when you enter. And this is how one Benedictine order states their vows. I found this vow rather lovely. They say this. This is what they say. They say, we vow to remain all our life within our local community. We live together, pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself, and the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive to work things out and restore peace. This means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offensive behavior, giving up one's preferences, and forgiving. Most uh, church membership commitments seem pretty tame by comparison, right? Um, Now, I'm not suggesting that you take that vow, but I am suggesting that many of us rob ourselves of spiritual depth that would only come if we really committed to community for the long haul. You don't have to wait for the perfect community before you commit. Dig in right where you are. Even if maybe you're a student and you know that you're going to be moving on in a few years, wherever you're at, be all there. And don't, don't just assume that maybe God doesn't want you to stay. Right? Like every family is imperfect, every church is imperfect, every small group is imperfect, but we can make it my 
broken, imperfect church, my imperfect small group. These are my people, and I'm digging in. So we commit to stay, and when we do that, we also commit to serve, to serve our family. You know, in the early church, folks were being added daily. This was a mega church. It was bursting at the seams, and if that was happening in our day, we would assume, wow, they must have a really good band. But people weren't coming to consume. 3,000 are added, and they were diving in as committed contributors. They were selling their possessions and belongings. Come to church and give all my possessions away. Well, gee, where do I sign up? But despite how demanding it was, people were flooding in because actually our hearts were made for more than entertainment and consumption. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of metaphors for the church, and the one that usually comes up when we talk about serving is the body metaphor. You've probably heard this. Some of you are hands, some of you are feet, some of you are eyes, some of you are ears. In other words, we're all gifted differently. We don't do the same things, but we're all part of one body. We all bring different talents, different spiritual gifts, and that's an important metaphor. That's important. But the more I think about it, the more I think that for our generation, we need to be reminded more of the family metaphor than the body metaphor when it comes to serving. Because our culture loves to remind us that we are all distinct, unique, special people. And sometimes we bring this attitude into the church that says, well, listen, I'm gifted in this way, so please give me this role, right? I am a hand, after all, and this hand knows how to play lead guitar, so I'm ready for my close-up, right? Um, But in a family, listen... We're all a part of a family. In a family, there are times where we serve, and it doesn't matter how you're gifted, okay? Like, you you don't serve in the family in your unique contribution all the time. You serve because it's your family. If my kid came to me, and and it was like, listen, Dad, washing dishes, it's just not my spiritual gift. (laughs) I'd be like, bud, what's your last name? Wrecker? It's your spiritual gift. I'm sorry, where, where did you say you live? 1311 Live Oak? Yeah. Everybody, everybody that lives there has this spiritual gift. That's just, that's just something we all do. Here's a plate, okay? And to, to commit to a church, it's not just to commit to serve in ways that highlight what I'm best at and what I like doing most. That's making it about me again. Listen, we're, we're a part of a family saying, this is my family. I'm going to serve in often thankless ways because we belong to one another. There's a single woman who serves in our kids' ministry named Joanna. And, um, you know, I don't think she wants to be single forever. I think she would love to be married. I think she'd love to have a family. Um, and she was, we were interviewing her about what membership meant to her. And we, we asked her, what, what does it mean to you, Joanna, to be a member of a church? And her answer was, she said, to me, it means serving and teaching the children of this church, even if I never have any of my own. That's family family. We serve one another. And finally, we commit to reconcile. See, one of the things you're going to immediately experience if you really pursue this kind of commitment to church, you're going to experience that it's hard, okay? People are different from you, and we commit together with people that maybe are very different from us, and they think differently from us. And, you know, even with people that are similar to you, you're likely over time to get your feelings hurt, gets feel slighted. People feel overlooked or slighted. That happened when we had a bunch of kids and I wasn't inviting as many people over anymore. And people were like, I thought we were friends. And I was like, yeah, but now I've got a bunch of babies. Like, I'm sorry. Um, People often fail in community to give each other the benefit of the doubt. And if I'm honest, some of us are just way too easily offended. Okay. Um, A lot of that is because we are not used to sticking it out for the long haul with people. We're not used to sticking it through in relationships when they get tough. We're used to bailing when relationships get tough. And so we have not learned the power of overlooking offense. We haven't grown thick skin. We've got thin skin because we bail on our relationships when it gets hard. 
But we can't give up on each other so easily. If you, if you look over your shoulder and you see a history of communities that have let you down and so you moved on, you know, churches that you've left, relationships that you've left, friendships that you've left, then that likely reveals a consumer mentality that you, we leave when things get hard or messy or when we're disappointed or when we're mildly offended. Think about it. If, if your community offends you, well, if it's mainly about what you get out of it, then if it offends you, absolutely, you should just bail, Right? But if community is not just something for you to consume, it's actually a sacrificial commitment based on the gospel truth that Jesus died to make us one, then we shouldn't give up so easily. It's easy to walk away. It's hard to mend what's broken and stick it out in the meantime. And so it's normal to be offended. It's going to happen over time if you stick around long enough. But the real moment of truth, of gospel truth, that comes with what, what do you do with that offense? Because seeking reconciliation can be painful. It might mean that you've got to humble yourself, which hurts. Many of us don't do it. We just run or or we just clam up. We just never bring it up and the bitterness just sort of festers inside. And then we eventually leave and attach ourselves to another community. We think it'll be different and we just are there until that one offends us too. A helpful scripture for me has been 1 Peter 4.8. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And he doesn't mean that love pretends that sin didn't happen, just sweeps it under the rug. No, he means that you love people right through it. You choose to bear with people. In other words, if there's an offense, love, it it, it covers a multitude of sins. Love overlooks offense when it can be overlooked. And when it can't be overlooked, love runs to reconciliation. To love in that way is hard. To overlook offenses can hurt. To resolve things, it can be difficult. It means you've got to put yourself out there, not knowing if the other person is going to receive you. And listen, I promise you, in a room with this many people in it, there are people in this room right now that have been avoiding this kind of reconciliation that community demands. You're carrying an offense, and you've been unwilling to enter into the suffering that's required of being a part of a community committed together. And maybe that's the call of the gospel on you today, is to pursue reconciliation. But it's in these messy bits of community that we grow, where we have that opportunity to actually let the gospel make Christian relationships distinct from relationships that don't have Christ at the center. Right? There is almost no better sign that the gospel has actually come alive in someone's heart than how they handle offenses within a community. Responding to the gospel today, for you, it might mean inviting someone over to dinner that you're tempted to dislike, or inviting someone to coffee that you've actually had some bitterness towards, and just showing them love and forgiving them might mean saying sorry to someone you've been avoiding. The quote from a guy named Joseph Hellerman, he wrote a book called When the Church Was a Family, he talks about how this grows us up. He says, spiritual formation occurs primarily in the context of community. People who remain connected with their brothers and sisters in the local church almost invariably grow in self-understanding and they mature in their ability to relate in healthy ways to God and their fellow human beings. This is especially in the case of those courageous Christians who stick it out through the often messy process of interpersonal discord and conflict resolution. Long-term interpersonal relationships are the crucible of genuine progress in the Christian life. 
People who stay also grow. People who leave do not grow. We all know people who are consumed with spiritual wanderlust, but we never get to know them very well because they cannot seem to stay put. They move along from church to church, ever searching for a congregation that will better satisfy their felt needs. Like trees replanted uh, repeatedly from soil to soil, these spiritual nomads fail to put down roots and seldom experience lasting and fruitful growth in their Christian lives. Here's the thing. We want reconciliation. We want committed community, but this kind of thing doesn't just happen. There's a reason social connectedness is declining. The powers of individualism and consumerism are strong. Um, You know, we can comfortably stay in our walled fortresses with Netflix on and stay comfortably secluded from relationships. And if we really want to see this happen, it's got to be more than a guilt trip. We've got to return over and over again to the foundation of our community. We need a powerful force to come in and break the hold that these idols have on our heart and give us the ability to form a new kind of community. And thankfully, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have a story that creates the kind of community that we desperately need. The gospel is that while we were sinners, filled with not love for God or love for others, but love for self, Jesus, in that very moment, while we were yet sinners, came down from heaven and gave himself to us. He committed to us completely. He calls us friends in the gospel. And he didn't come for us for what he could get out of us, but to offer himself up for us, even unto the point of death. And his self-giving love creates a new humanity that lives in a new way, no longer for our sake, but for the sake of the one who died for our sake and was raised for us. His broken body and his shed blood given for us. So as we meditate on this gospel now, we meditate on the the Jesus who gave us all for us, we ask, how does this now form me to commit to him and to one another through this amazing reconciling gospel? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that, oh, we thank you that if if I, if we were the, the only person in the world that you would have died for us because you love each and every one of us as individuals. But we also thank you that the gospel is so much bigger than that. That the gospel is not just that you loved us as individuals, but that you loved every tribe, tongue, and nation, and you died to create something that the world has never seen before. A community not based on our affinity, not based on our nationality, a community not based on that we're all Stormers fans or we all go for the All Blacks. No, no. A community Everyone that comes to Christ as the cornerstone. Everyone that sees you as the living waters that spring up to eternal life. Everyone that comes to you with their thirsty hearts and their hungry souls and is satisfied in you. We also find that we come to one another and we commit to each other and we create something truly special. I pray that this church would be one small reflection of your body in this world and that when the table view community around sees the relationships, they would say there is something different here. There is something compelling here. There is something life-giving here. These are people who are rooted together, who are growing together. These are people who don't give up on each other easily. These are people who show up for each other. And our hearts are hungry for that, Lord. And so I pray that there would be something beautiful and intoxicating about the community of this church. And you would cause them to commit to one another deeply. Lord Jesus, would your Holy Spirit show us ways that we can do this better, that we can resist the lies of individualism, consumerism, and sacrificially commit to what you're calling us to. As the band comes up at this time, maybe just take a moment uh, before they lead us in the next song to take a moment of prayer and just pray over this. Ask yourself, what, 
what would happen? What would happen if you, if you committed to showing up in your life group every single week and truly pressing in and serving in often thankless ways? What would happen if you came every week to service, even when you weren't on the roster, to, to not just be blessed, but also to be a blessing? What could Jesus do with that simple faith and that obedience if you committed to stay, if you committed to serve, if you committed to reconcile in this place where God has called you for such a time as this? Pray where Jesus might be calling you to respond. Maybe there's someone that you need to reach out to and reconcile with even today. Jesus, would you lead us as we pray and as we worship you? Thank you that you are worth everything. In Jesus' name, amen.